Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast. I'm here today with Ben Nelson, the founder and chief executive of the Minerva Project. Uh, ben, it's great to be, have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, David. Could, could you start out by just telling us a little bit about your own educational background? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And, and you know, what, what did you do right when you left college? Sure. Um, I was born in Israel and uh, did uh, my most of my elementary school in there. I, did, I spent a year uh, in third grade when, in Ithaca, where my father was a uh, visiting uh, professor at Cornell. And then beginning in fifth grade, moved to New Jersey and uh, grew up in the public school system in Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, then went to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania as an undergrad. Um, and then uh, was kind of in the startup world, uh, both while I was at school, but also after I uh, graduated. So had a um, kind of a, a run with uh, with the uh, the startup world, and and tell us a little about those startups. What what did you try while you were still in college, and what what were those first experiments like for you in, in startups? Well, uh, I my, my I had a couple of very strange initial jobs, <laughs> as I think we all do have our, our first jobs. But my first probably significant uh, job while I was at school was I was a small business consultant. And this was really at the dawn of the commercial internet. And so there was um, a, a pair of twins uh, that uh, came into our office and said, you know, we're, we're selling CDs on this thing called the internet and our sales are increasing 60% month over month. And every month we're losing more money. Um, <laughs> what's, what's going on? And that company was a CD now at the time it was just four of them. And it was before Amazon launched. Uh, to just give you some some perspective as, as to really how uh, long ago that was, and that kind of introduced me to to this crazy world. Um, and I went and worked and had a couple of very interesting stints at the Walt Disney Company and uh, um, uh, in Asia, and worked in consulting in for a competitive local exchange carrier. Kind of looked at that whole startup uh, ecosystem, and then was at a far too young of an age recruited to run a small uh, startup in, in Silicon Valley and uh, brought uh, myself uh, out to, to the, the Silicon Valley because of that. Uh, lived in San Francisco for a few years and then had um, and then found my way to, uh, to a company called Snapfish where I, where I was worked for uh, several years and eventually became the CEO of. Uh, and then after Snapfish, uh, decided I wanted to do something a little bit more meaningful uh, that had kind of a, a, a broader societal impact. Uh, and that's where Minerva came from. And going back to a passion I had while I was an undergraduate. And, and tell us a bit about the, the idea for Minerva. So you wanted to have a broader social impact. Uh, what gave you the idea, still a, a, a young, high-tech CEO, that, that you could take on you know, the world's leading uh, universities and come up with this radically new model. Where where did that come from, and ha- and what was that sort of early genesis project of getting it launched? Yeah. So the uh, the 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 background is uh, 
is is kind of twofold. So I think initially was the core idea, which really I, I got when I was an undergraduate. I took a course on the history of the American university and uh, realized that the American university isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is teaching people to be uh, enfranchised citizens, to have liberty, to have a liberal arts education that provides them the opportunity to have liberty, to learn practical knowledge that they can use uh, to solve societal problems. Uh, and kind of came up with formulation as to how universities should do that. Uh, but when I was an undergraduate, I couldn't really get that implemented, so that was not particularly uh, useful, um, uh, or at least wasn't practicable at the time. And years later, when I was at at uh, winding down my time at Snapfish, I, I was thinking about what do I do next with my life, and kind of came back to that initial idea. I thought that the country, the world needed it more than ever. And at the same time, I I realized that just going and asking a university to change is just not going to happen. I tried that already and there was really no incentive. But at the same time, I also realized that universities are extraordinarily hierarchical. They always look up, right? And so you know, Harvard or Stanford could do something that is massively idiotic and destructive. And within 12 months, every university on the planet would do the exact same thing. Uh, and, and, and this has repeated itself over and over and over again in history for the good and for the bad. Uh, you know, an example of, of the good is when, you know, Johns Hopkins kind of parachuted into the United States and uh, created a Johns Hopkins institution was a German research university model in the United States, marrying a liberal arts college. And within a decade, Harvard said, well, we can't be out-eluted by that and adopted that. And within a decade from that, every university in the country adopted that model. And that was for the benefit of, uh, of American higher education and the research enterprise uh, globally. And at the same time, you could point to the, the exact opposite, right? In the late 1960s, where students were, I think, justifiably protesting against the need to learn Greek and Latin and read just a bunch of dead white men. And the response from the faculty wasn't, oh, okay, wow, we should really no longer center your education on a bunch of content, right? But instead, we should be refocusing it on what the students were actually asking for at Brown University, methods of thinking. Um, but instead, the faculty couldn't agree on what those methods are. And so they said, you know what? Just study whatever you want. We just don't care. Um, and within uh, five or six years of Brown and Berkeley abandoning uh, education, effectively, they effectively gave up on the educational enterprise. Um, every university in the country abandoned their, uh, their stake in education, save for two. Um, and so the entire collapse of, uh, of an actual uh, philosophy around what it is that an educated uh, uh, liberal, small uh, liberal uh, uh, citizen uh, looks like was precipitated by these same elite institutions and, and propagated everywhere. And so what the aha moment is kind of a long way of saying is that, wait a second, if I can't just convince people to do something, but these elite institutions can, why don't I just create the world's most elite institution? And then I'll give you know, otherwise good people in higher education, the opportunity to follow a different leader. And that's, uh, that's where, where Minerva came from. And, and so when you came with that, that kernel of an idea, I'm curious, did you 
look at, because one thing when you looked across higher ed, you saw a lot of very, very old institutions, but there really wasn't a model of anyone doing what you described that was also a for-profit. And so did you look at, do I want to do this as a for-profit, a non-profit, a social enterprise? How did you think about the best way to carry out that vision? Yeah, absolutely. So there are roles for nonprofits and there are roles for for profits that are generally well described and articulated in our society. The idea of having an elite uh, university that was for profit was unlikely, uh, and uh, and you and and broadly that's because a university that is there to serve individuals of merit will overwhelmingly serve individuals that are not rich. Uh, and therefore, having a university be a, a for-profit probably didn't make much sense. Not so much, by the way, uh, because there's anything wrong with paying taxes. That's probably a good thing. Uh, but the, there is really no market for scholarships, right? And so setting up the university as a nonprofit always seemed to make sense. We incubated within a nonprofit. The university is a nonprofit today, always will be. Right, but th- that made sense. Having said that, building technology platforms, uh, developing innovative, responsive pedagogical and curricular methodologies, being able to actually generate a powerful brand, right, that has uh, global implications, uh, that is marketed correctly, that then influences and services other institutions of higher education and secondary education in an effective way is something that nonprofits are uniquely terrible at doing. In fact, there isn't a single piece of technology that we use that is built by nonprofits. There isn't uh, a single brand that we uh, are, are, are interacting with in our day-to-day lives managed by nonprofits. There isn't a, uh, a, a, a service provider, a consulting firm, uh, a, a design firm that is a nonprofit. And that's because those systems simply don't work in our day-to-day world. And so that division between the for-profit and the nonprofit actually was pretty clear. You needed a for-profit organization and actually understood how to develop valuable intellectual property, technology, business methodologies, a brand, a presence, a go-to-market uh, capability, and needed a nonprofit that would be the showcase, the example for what every other nonprofit university would look to replicate. And that's how we kind of created the nonprofit Minerva University and then the for profit Minerva project that then helps other universities uh, actually follow in its footsteps. And, and what did that initial business plan with those two elements, the, the the sort of paired Minerva project and the Minerva University, what did the initial business plan look like in terms of raising the the initial funding you'd need to get this idea off the ground? Well, it was not easy. Uh, so, uh, and so the, uh, there, there, there were many, many challenges. So first, you know, the it's kind of interesting, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, you oftentimes are, are told, you know, you got to work on your elevator pitch, right? So, you know, the, the small, pithy 22nd uh, pitch that, you know, you can sell somebody in an elevator and they'll immediately get it. And what most Silicon Valley companies will do is they'll work on their elevator pitches, but the, and the elevator pitches sound great, but 
the actual plans are completely idiotic. They don't make any sense whatsoever. And that's why so much garbage gets funded in Silicon Valley, because everybody's focused on the superficial and not on the substantive. And by some luck, some superficial idea sometimes stumbles upon a good idea over, once they operationalize and they pivot to that uh, uh, over time. Minerva was the exact opposite. The substance behind what we were doing was incredibly deep. I mean, it was very well thought through. It had all of the various components you have to think about. And you're obviously teaching students, right? You're, you're having human lives in, in, under your uh, uh, care and feeding, and you have, you have to think through a lot of detail. But the elevator pitch sounded completely insane. Oh, yeah, I'm going to start the world's greatest university from scratch and then force the rest of the secondary and post-secondary sector to reform globally. That's the elevator pitch. And it makes absolutely no sense, right? You look at it from, from an external perspective, it just sounds clinically insane. And so... The, the challenge that I had was that really the elevator pitch was so outlandish that, it, that even as I got into the detailed explanation, okay, we're going to do this first and that second, and here's how we develop the curriculum, and here's why we can find great students, because you know elite universities are constricting the number of spots that they have, and there are a lot of great students that are even as qualified as the best Ivy League students, they just can't get in because of random access issues, especially with international students and all the rest. And, you know, you don't have to have the infrastructure and you can do this thing and you can divide, create better outcomes. And you, they look at all the steps and say, oh, yeah, I guess they're all logical. But they couldn't get over the elevator pitch not making sense. <laughs> they couldn't get past the, the audacity of what we were actually trying to do. And so for a long, long time, I was just not getting traction, right? I just was, was going to investor after investor and telling them, look, you know, we're, we're, we're going to go and do this, uh, this thing and it's a long process and it's going to take a long time. And so it was actually quite challenging. And it, was, it wasn't until a year into the process where one investor actually finally gave me uh, a, a piece of good advice uh, and really in his criticism. I was actually Peter Thiel, the only time I ever met him. And he said, um, look, you have a chicken and egg problem. You want to create the world's greatest university, which means it has the best brand. And the best brand will be developed by having the best students. I get that. But the best students are going to be attracted to the best brand. So you don't really have a good way of short-circuiting that catch-22. You don't have a good answer for that. So until you do, and uh, I'm, yep, I, I'm we out. can't find you, right? <laughs> right. And, and so that's when I, I, I kind of step back and say, you know what, that's the first piece of valuable feedback that, I, that I've gotten in this process and that's where I realized, look, I need some kind of validation. Uh, and that led me to finding a way to meet Larry Summers. Um, and I uh, was probably the most famous living ex-president, ex-university president in the world. And, um, and for whatever kind of stroke of luck, in that one initial meeting, Larry just was enamored with the idea 
And by the end of an hour, 45 minute meeting, which was scheduled for half an hour, he said, I should be the chair of your advisory board. And I didn't have an advisory board. I didn't, I, it was just a figment of my imagination at the time. But I quickly created an advisory board for which Larry was the chair. And then that allowed me to go and knock on Benchmark's door. Uh, actually knocked on Benchmark and Sequoia's door, the two firms that I did not want to pitch until I knew I could raise the money. Sequoia turned me down. Benchmark said yes. And the rest is uh, is history. So, so obviously, Larry, very famous economist, policymaker, more checkered history with Harvard presidency. <laughs> but, but most students who you were trying to recruit probably don't know him, right? So, so what what was your answer to Peter Thiel's question? How are you going to convince students to go to a a, a campusless, unknown university when they have the CVs to be getting into these top places? What what was the answer to that question? I I, I get that he yeah. could get you in the door to investors, but but how did you address that core problem? Yeah, you know, it's actually astonishing as to how uh, how much that brand uh, association mattered outside the United States. So it's true. You go to most you know American seventeen year olds say, "Who's Larry Summers?" You know, most people wouldn't know, but when you are going and trying to establish what, what we do uh, in, in Kosovo, in China, in Kenya, in Brazil, and you say, oh yeah, Minerva, brand new university, the chair of the advisory board is the former president of Harvard and the former secretary of the treasury of the United States of America, that is instant validation. <laughs> and so the, the brand association that we had, and then of course the team that we built around it, first chief academic officer, the uh, the first team that, that I built to actually run the university, uh, provided that kind of, uh, of branding event. And then Larry leading, uh, or having Larry then enabling Benchmark to say, wow, this is a great proof point. They came in. Then that generated the press that we initially got. And it was the avalanche of press uh, that we got initially that actually enabled us to go to students and their parents and say, look, this is the real deal, right? And, uh, and you know, in our very first pilot class, right, we had students turning down Ivy League offers. We had students that left other universities at they already started and came, came to us uh, because they looked at the substance of what we were offering and they realized that the social proof was there and that they had the cover uh, to come. And then, of course, when you had the pilot students, the next class was a little bit easier, the class after that, and then it snowballed. Yeah. So I want to come back to both that, that founding team you built and that first class. But, but before we do, what, what, was the, what, what did that pitch look like to Benchmark? So how much did you say, I need to get this started? And what did you promise them in return? Because as I understand the two parts of the model, right. it's, it's audacious enough to yeah. say, okay, I'm going to take on the IVs <laughs> and build this thing from scratch globally. Yeah. But oh, by the way, it's only once we've had graduates right. and we've proven all this that I'm ever going to be able to return your money because yeah. I won't have anything to sell. So, hey. so what... You yes, know, even it, with Larry, what, what was the pitch that they're going to get their 10x return they're looking? Th this is the craziest part about the fundraise, which was we never talked about it. 
so so it was actually it was very strange, right? In the sense that we, you know, I explained, hey, look, you know, here's how the university will be self-sustainable, and here's how, you know, and initially we thought actually the university would be very, you know, would, would actually grow and be quite large. But we said, look, you know, it'll take time and then eventually we'll be able to propagate it. And that's where the, the real return comes in. But it was much more so around kind of a future state. And it was actually a fascinating, uh, and the, the, the second person to join the, the, uh, the advisory board, who is now actually the chairman of the board of the university and was the chairman of, of the nonprofit that would house the university since 2013, is Bob Carey, a former senator and governor of Nebraska, was former president of the New School. And Bob ran for his old Senate seat in 2012 during uh, the uh, one of the Tea Party elections, and uh, and didn't wasn't able to get it back. Uh, and so in January of 2013, he joined uh, our uh, the, and basically became the chairman of the board of the nonprofit. And uh, around that same time, I guess in November or December, he came out to California. And he, I introduced him to Kevin at Benchmark. And before niceties, before hi, I'm Bob, nice to meet you. Bob, just first words out of his mouth were, what were you thinking? <laughs> which, which I couldn't believe he actually asked my only investor at that time. <laughs> Right? I mean, that was not what I expected. But I will this say, is not why I yeah, flew you right. out here. Exactly. But, <laughs> but I will say that Kevin from Benchmark did not miss a beat. He said, look, this idea that you find a startup and you give them a series A or a seed round or what have you, and 18 months later, they sell for a billion dollars, like Instagram did, which was a Benchmark investment, is fantasy. It's not the way that business actually works. He says, mostly... When we invest in a company, it's seven years on average before there's a liquidity event. Kevin said, look, I mostly do enterprise, and that's usually nine to 10 years on average before there's a liquidity event. Minerva will be above average. And that was it. <laughs> and, and so it, it, it actually got me to understand both, by the way, why Benchmark is the best venture firm in Silicon Valley by a mile. It's an undisputed uh, and has been for a long, long time. Also, why they were the only ones who could do it, because ultimately most venture firms have this ten-year window, and even though they know that not everything will exit in ten years, they all place bets with the assumption that it's going to happen or could happen in that time frame. Benchmark looks at absolute value, and rather than saying and trying to time when the market will realize the value of an enterprise, they'll say, "Look." This is a big, audacious plan. It's a, obviously an enormous sector, right? The, the, the education sector, higher education and secondary education. If you have a brand leader in this sector, the returns will be there, right? But yeah, they'll take longer than, than usual. And that's okay because it's a portfolio. And that's, a, uh, that's just a very rare ability for a, 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 an investment firm to be able to do that. So, so that's the uh, the the reality behind uh, behind what uh, what what transpired. And t tell us a little about how you recruited those initial members of your founding team to build out this model. When 
you know, you were you were still looking for the initial investment when you were still at this stage of not having students or or any physical infrastructure or other things. Well, I mean, when I was initially looking for the funding, it was just me. I mean, there was no founding team, right? right. Um, so that was that was very early on, right? <laughs> right. Um, and then once I, I raised the money from Benchmark, then you know, it was assembling uh, the team, right? And so basically, you know, the money, so Larry joined the, uh, or became the, the chair of the advisory board at the, at the end of 2011, the end of December. Um, Benchmark uh, agreed to, to fund the company in February, funded it in March. We announced in April of 2012. And then between July and December of 2012 is when I assembled the core team. And uh, the first few months, <laughs> I was so busy dealing with press and emails. I couldn't do anything. <laughs> it was, it was yeah. crazy. Uh, but my first employee started in July and then uh, built a team for in the following five months. And, uh, and then we, we knew we had a, a two years in order to get our pilot class in, right? And so we had a list of tasks that we had to get done, right? We had to get our accreditation. We had to figure out the technology through which we would conduct classes. We would have to build our brand. We would have to find the students, recruit faculty, uh, design the entire educational programming, find housing for the students, get the authority to issue visas, right? So, you know, raise money such that we can not just do a pilot class, but then do all of the, uh, the future classes. So there was, there were these list of we had 12 existential uh, steps. And if we did 11 of the 12 perfectly, but not the 12th, we would be out of business. I mean, it wouldn't work. So we just had to go through and knock off one after the other. And it was, you know, somewhat nerve wracking, but, uh, but it was kind of the journey we all signed up for. And, and how did you go about uh, recruiting and selecting that that team that uh, that was joining you for this pretty arduous two-year timeline. Yeah, it's you know, <laughs> I I mean, it sounds so absurd when you think about it, but um, every so there were four individuals that that made Minerva happen uh, that were in my senior team. Um, Jonathan Katzman, J.K. was the first one. He was our chief product officer, and. I met him a year earlier. Uh, he was uh, he ran a company, sold uh, his company to to Yahoo. He was there waiting for his vesting period to be done, his lockup, and he was freeing up in August of 2012. And I met him the previous summer. And when I was raising money for Benchmark, I said, "Hey, look, you know, it, I you know I I met you, I liked you, I think we could be great uh, on this." He was animated by the idea. And I said, when you're done, you should seriously consider this. And he did and came on board. So that, so that was just kind of from the broader network. And um, that's different from the John Katzman of To You oh, and correct. Doodle. And, yeah. Correct. That, that's, his, that's his doppelganger. Okay. <laughs> different, different John Katzman. So a good name yeah. for Ed Startup. Exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah. Um, then I, I needed to find somebody who would do, do my accreditation. I actually went to the local accreditor. And the president of the uh, accreditation body said, well, you know, there are these consultants and here you should talk to this guy. And, 
and I talked to him and I explained him what I was trying to do. Again, he thought I was clinically insane. And then one fine uh, uh, morning in, in early September, actually exactly uh, um, nine years ago, he calls me and, and says, listen, uh, Terry Cannon, who is the executive vice president of the regional accreditor, is, uh, is leaving um, uh, the accreditor. She can get done what you need to get done. I can't. And before he, she snapped up, grab her. Uh, and I said, okay. So it was a Thursday. Friday, I ping her. Um, we set up lunch for the following Tuesday. 20 minutes into lunch, I hire her on the spot. And today, Terry is the president of Minerva University. Just to give you some kind of a, a sense of, of, of how that, that evolves. And so that was Terry. Um, also, highly unconventional way. Probably the most conventional was Robin, who was our chief experience officer, who we found through a recruiting firm. Uh, even though I, I knew of her work before, because she was also in the photo space for a while, and so I, I pointed the recruiting firm towards uh, somebody who, who could could do what she did, which was take a a brand new brand and make it an international. Uh, well-respected uh, uh, institution, right? Which we wanted the same thing. And the, her mix of, of uh, she was our chief experience officer and she built the Minerva brand, which was, which was extraordinary. And then the, the, uh, in parallel to, to bringing Robin on board, I also um, met Stephen and this was completely at random. I mean, so I was looking for my chief academic officer. I was interviewing a bunch of people and I was at a conference and I bumped into a woman and I I I introduced myself and she says, oh, you know, I said, oh, hey, I'm Ben. Who are you? And she says, oh, I'm also Robin, different Robin. Uh, and says, oh, I'm a, a clinical psychologist. She says, what do you do? And I says, oh, well, you know, I'm Ben. I'm starting a new university. And she says, really? You, sh- you should talk to my husband. I said, okay. I mean, I don't, who's your husband? <laughs> so, so we go to lunch, she and he and my wife and I, and, you know, they're kind of talking amongst themselves, our wives. And then he and I are, just talking about Minerva. And Stephen was the former dean of social science at Harvard. He was the youngest tenured professor in the psychology department's history, then went to run the Center for Advanced Studies in Behavioral Science at Stanford. And was just completely aligned with everything that was underpinning the, uh, the design of Minerva University. And so... Um, you know, I, I wish I had this wonderful secret uh, on how to hire amazing people, uh, but it was almost all through luck <laughs> that they assembled. It's a completely non-replicable. Great. Um, so, so you mentioned your 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 list of twelve things that you had to yeah. knock out for to be able to open and accept that yeah. first class. Um, had you worked that out when when you were asking for the money from Benchmark? Did you have some sense of what those things were going to be, the timeline, what what was going to be necessary to do that, and you know to actually be able to serve that first class. So, did, did that sort of estimates? Because this was not something anyone had really tried to do before in quite that way. Mm-hmm. So, coming up with an accurate list uh, and, and and being able to to stick to it, I would think would be a pretty ambitious thing to to accomplish. Yeah, without question, uh, there. Uh... Yes, uh, I had a, a, a bunch of uh, theories behind all of them. I mean, so I, I knew broadly what we needed to get done. 
Um, and maybe, you know, I, I knew 10 of the 12 or, or, you know, nine of the 12 or something like that. And then the others kind of became apparent, even though I think they were all mostly straightforward. And the, the plan was, and really, uh, and, and the reality was that I believed at the time that I had several shots on goal for each of them, right? Which was to say, oh, okay, you know, so for example, you know, here's how to get accreditation. Here's the ideal. We incubate within an existing university, but then there are backups. Maybe we go and, you know, try to acquire a, a, a small university or, or, you know, and so there were, there were other kinds of processes. And then as I assembled the team, it was pretty clear that there were some paths that were vastly preferable to others. And, and that's how it effectively got, got steered over, over time. And how much of the Minerva model as it exists today for the university, how much of that was part of this initial blueprint? So the idea of a, a different major global city for, yeah. for, for each of your semesters, the idea of this very ambitious common core yeah. of concepts, of, of, of habits of mind, of knowledge areas, Did, was that all worked out or was that something that you all came to in that that year to first year together or yeah the the five minute description of Minerva that I could give in January of 2011 five months into my own Minerva journey but a year before I had my first time of revenue no co-founders is about 85 to 90 percent what Minerva is today it was it was highly designed so I could tell you we would be 80 to 90 percent non-american I could tell you that they would live in seven different cities I could tell you that they would study four systems of thinking, formal, empirical, complex, and rhetorical, right? I could tell you that uh, the students are going to be, you know, overwhelmingly uh, from different backgrounds. I could tell you broadly the kinds of subjects that they would study, that, you know, we wouldn't be, you know, teaching them how to be engineers or, or um, at least not mechanical engineers or, uh, or pianists, right? Where, where, you know, these are more uh, subjects of the, of the mind. Um, you know, the, the, the whole idea that they'll, uh, that, that the classes will be live and online and highly participatory. So all of that was basically there, but the details underneath them were all to be developed, right? I mean, uh, in fact, I mean, just to, to give you some perspective, the underlying technology that enabled forum to exist didn't come out in beta until January of 2013. So months after my engineering teams actually started, <laughs> we literally, I mean, the, the, the idea behind Minerva was technologically impossible. And this is also another, I mean, there's so much of Minerva was luck, like finding that initial team. But another piece of luck was Minerva was actually impossible to, to bring up Bef any time before I did, and almost certainly it's close to impossible to bring up now, right? Because of all of the, the, the nature of, of the shifting landscape, right? And so we just threaded the needle purely by accident, right? Purely by some fortune of time and circumstance, uh, certainly not because of foresight or any kind of insight that I had. Um, and, and it just, it all, it all worked. And what was the technological breakthrough that happened right at that right time? Because you obviously had in your mind how yeah. this might work across all of these global cities. What was missing and what happened that enabled it? 
Yeah, so so there were actually a number of factors that that were that were missing and occurred while I was creating uh, creating Minerva. So one, from a technological perspective, was just the invention of WebRTC, which is a a way to have multi-threaded video embedded in the browser. I mean, the fact that you and I, for example, are having this conversation and there's my video stream and your video stream and it's on a website seems pretty normal to us. In 2012, that did not exist. Google Hangouts did not exist. If you wanted to do multi-threaded video, you had a client-side application like Zoom, right? You didn't show it didn't show up on a browser, right? And, and that was kind of a key part of, of what we needed to do and be able to look at each of the videos. That's one example. Another example, the idea that online education could be anything but garbage from a brand perspective was completely absurd. Right? And it just so happened that in the fall of 2011, three rogue professors at Stanford decided to put their classes online and created MOOCs. And all of a sudden, as we were getting our funding, online education was starting to be associated. And actually, two weeks after we were announced, Coursera announced. And all of a sudden, Harvard, well, I mean, and a month after that, edX, right? And so Within a month and a half after our existence, Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Princeton, uh, Penn, all said, oh yeah, the future is online. And all of the branded right, uh, education came from, from that perspective. I mean, it, so there's just so many factors that when I was starting Minerva, it just it seemed logical that they'd come about, but there was no evidence that they would, right? And, and again, it was part of that threading that needle. And and you referred to your four you know ways of of thinking and the the yeah. the, the common core elements there, but but you said them almost kind of <laughs> matter of fact, and yet here you are trying to sort of boil the ocean of the the all of the knowledge that's out there and figure out how am I going to design this thing which which as you pointed out most of the elite universities had moved away from the idea that there was a common core basis of knowledge right. and so. Given the explosion of knowledge that's happened, it's it would seem to me the the idea of figuring out what you're going to include, what you're not going to include, how you're going to organize it. That's that's a pretty huge task for for you and a, and a small team. So so how how did how did you go about figuring out just what was going to be there and what wasn't going to be? Yeah, it, you know it's um it was a fascinating process, but. The core, and, and actually, uh, maybe I'll describe a little bit about the process, um, but the core concept, the core idea behind it actually is relatively straightforward. If you think about the way that we interact with the world, there really are, as far as I can tell, only four levels that are relevant to our day-to-day -day lives, right? So level number one is looking at the world around us algorithmically, right? So that, those are formal systems, right? You look at data, you think about logic, you think about reasoning, right? And that kind of is a, is a fundamental layer of being able to interpret what goes on in the world around you, right? But as we also all know, that the world is not formal, right? The world does not present itself in neatly uh, uh, diced uh, information that could easily be analyzed and put into an algorithm and spit out a correct or incorrect answer, right? And that's where the second layer comes in, which is the observed world, the empirical world. Right? In empirical analyses, you look at data that sometimes is ill-structured, 
right, that sometimes doesn't lead to a formal answer, but leads to possibilities. And you need to understand levels of confidence and how to test hypotheses and how to verify them, etc. And this is kind of the world that really much of academia lives in, right? And then you have the next layer, uh, which is complex systems, or right? And complex systems are actually the world that we live in, right? It's the world of emergent properties and second and third order effects and how you can take observed information, but then once you introduce a solution or a new factor into the system, the system itself changes, right? And so it's all of that dynamicism, which is actually the representation of the way the world works. And then lastly, there's the abstraction of that, the rhetorical systems, the ways in which we communicate with one another, um, the ways that are more human or fundamentally human in our view of the world. And so when you look at it from that perspective, it's pretty clear what you need to learn. And yeah, somebody could start equibbling, oh, well, what about quantum systems? Or, well, you know what? For 99.999% of humanity, quantum systems don't matter, right? I mean, yes, it, it, at some point, maybe for some people, but, yep. but from a fundamental way of, of navigating the world. And so then what, what uh, was, was quite apparent to us, uh, and this was actually, so, so that thought, was easy for me to get to well before the team came on board. And what Stephen brought on, on, on board is to say, you know, these systems actually map on, not on a one-to-one basis, but relatively well with what universities always say they want to teach, but don't, right? So if you think about what is a critical thinker, it's somebody who really can think algorithmically in many ways. There are elements that are across other areas, but a lot of that is covered in kind of this, these formal systems. And if you think about somebody who's a creative problem solver, right, that's really defined by empirical systems, right? You actually look at the observed world, you find, you test hypotheses, you create hypotheses, you test them, right? You understand the impact. So a lot of creativity is really based on that. And then if you think about complex systems, that's really how, how we interact, right? And, and how we, we, we work uh, alongside one another um, and, and all of those, and not just how we as humans interact, but how systems interact, right? And there are all sorts of interaction effects there. And of course, you know, if you think about rhetorical systems, that's how we communicate, right? And so, boy, if we can teach our students how to think critically and solve problems creatively and uh, uh, interact effectively and communicate effectively, we're kind of, kind of covering all bases. And so... And so then we, we started breaking them down into their component parts because you can't teach critical thinking as a thing, right? You have to think about, okay, well, what's, what are types of critical thinking? Evaluating claims is a type of critical thinking or making a decision trade-off is critical thinking. And then what are the subcomponents of those? And so we created this whole methodology, right, as a team to figure out, okay, here are the criteria that would make a learning objective something that we teach. It had to have an empirical basis. It had to have uh, applications across all sorts of different contexts, right? So it's not kind of esoteric to a particular field. Um, it has to be proven, right? Uh, it, it has to be uh, something that is the right level, right? So not too granular, not too general, Right. And so we, we went through that process. And it, I will tell you, it was an enormously fun uh, time. And by the way, we revisit that learning index every single year. Right. So in our first year, we had 128 
learning objectives. Now we have 80. And we actually, with those 80, cover more than what we did with 128, right? And so it's it's a process of iteration. Mm-hmm. That, that's great. And and in terms of the, the idea of starting with a, a, a foundational year in San Francisco and then going to these other global cities, yeah. um, has that also evolved? Did you have the list of cities and how did you choose them? I'm, I'm curious, yeah. for example, Taipei rather than mainland China right. um, and Africa, which will probably be the largest continent, it isn't included. So right. how did you draw up your, your list of where you wanted to be? And I'm also curious, as you thought about that, one of the big things that got attention was not just am I going to build a university that's going to be as good or better than any of the of the best known ones in the world, but I'm going to do it for $10,000 a year. Right. Going to places like San Francisco yeah. and London doesn't necessarily <laughs> right. say, I'm going to do this at a low cost. So right. I'm, I'm curious about sort of your site location and how you thought yeah. about the, the affordability aspect. Yeah. So so the the concept of the seven cities existed well before uh, I got funding, but the cities themselves changed dramatically. So when we brought in our first pilot class, the placeholder cities weren't just expensive places like San Francisco and London, but were also New York and Mumbai and Hong Kong, right? So kind of a tour of the world's kind of megapolises and financial capitals and things like that. And when we kind of, even though the pilot class came in with the assumption of those cities, we wanted to engage them and say, well, what do you think? And they said, we hate this idea. <laughs> so, you know, why are you sending us to the same city over and over again all over the world? We want more variety. And by the way, these cities are super expensive, right? And so even though tuition you know, is, is cheap, we still have to pay for housing. We still have to pay for food. You know, and that's, you know, it's very expensive to pay for housing in Hong Kong. And it's going to be hard for students to afford that. And so, so then we did a, an iteration off of that. Right. And so we figured, okay, well, that's a really good point. We really probably shouldn't be in two American cities. Right. So we'll do San Francisco and London, but like get rid of New York. And, you know, we don't really have anything in the Muslim world. And so let's go and do Istanbul. And, uh, and then, you know, if, if we're in, instead of, uh, of Hong Kong, let's go to Taipei, which is uh, much, much more affordable. And isn't behind the Great Firewall, so that, which is why mainland China, we just because of the nature of the the classes that are online, we just couldn't couldn't do. Um, and so, uh, and so that was an iteration. And then, and let's instead of Mumbai, let's do Bangalore. And then there was the uh, attempted coup in Istanbul, right? And the suspension of academic freedom. So we couldn't go to Istanbul, and so then we had to shift. Right, so all of these things were were kind of the evolution, and that's how we got Hyderabad, right? Because we wanted some kind of mix of we didn't want to lose the 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 connection to to South Asia, but we but also kind of the Hindu traditions. We also wanted Muslim traditions, and so we kind of found a hybrid city. But you know, then you say, well, boy, what about Africa, right? And and so we looked deeply at. Johannesburg at Cape Town at Durban. Unfortunately, three of the highest, uh, three of the ten highest murder rates on the planet, uh, and so challenging for a startup university to say to parents we're going to send kids to to that environment. We looked at Accra and Dakar, um, 
both of which had 24-hour rolling blackouts every week. Uh, and, uh, and unfortunately, uh, no power, no Minerva, <laughs> because again, we do, our, we do our classes online. And so that presented a challenge. Uh, most recently, we've actually examined Kigali, which, we're, which we're, we think is probably going to be the first location uh, in, in the continent where it could be the right mix of uh, uh, public safety and physical infrastructure that can support us. But we, we don't think it's quite there yet. Uh, but I predict that that'll enter the rotation in the next three to five years. And so as you've looked at these cities and set up, what's the what's the typical setup there? Do you Are you partnering in any of them with local universities? Because even though you went for more variety, still Berlin, Seoul, London, San Francisco, these are still some of the most expensive cities in the world, right, to be. And, and so I'm curious, how have you figured yeah. out how to make it affordable for the total cost of the education, not just the... Right. Well, London, London and San Francisco certainly are uh, uh, quite expensive, even though we found some very reasonable housing in, in London, but the cost of living in London is high. Berlin and Seoul are actually quite affordable. It's actually one of the great things. Berlin, Seoul, Taipei, Buenos Aires, their uh, Hyderabad are, are quite affordable from, uh, uh, from both the housing and a cost of living food and and other uh, and other respects. So we we've been good about balancing uh, those costs, uh, but also the footprint is you live and you know and that's the only infrastructure you have. We don't have to rent classrooms. We don't have to rent offices. You know, you go there and you are staying in group housing for four months. Right? We go in and out. And we actually designed our semester. So the semesters always start after September 1st and after January 1st and always end before December 31st and April 30th so that the students only have to rent for four months, not five, right? And so those are, you know, that's a 20% reduction in cost, right? Where if we were to start a week earlier or end a week later. And so we made sure to keep all of these costs very much in check uh, because how important affordability is. But still, at the end of the day, when you add the housing, the cost of food, right, the, the fees that students have to pay for, for other, other things, you're still getting up to $30,000 a year in costs. And so there is, and half of that is just the cost of being alive, right? And, and it's challenging uh, because our students can't afford that. And so we have to raise a huge amount of money for scholarships, uh, 72% of our students are on scholarships, 80% are on some form of financial aid, and it's all need-based, right? So, uh, And so despite the fact that we charge less than half of a traditional private American university, our socioeconomic distribution is vastly more diverse than a typical private um, elite institution. So can you tell tell us a little bit about that student body? So so what did that initial class of 30 look like and how did you go about recruiting them? How has it evolved in terms of the the geographic composition, the economic composition and and given that uh, as you've already noted a number of them are very high need or at least for, from a US perspective in terms of this, how are you helping them to to pay for it holistically in terms of Work study, uh, you know, financial aid, loans, yeah. scholarship. Yeah, exactly. Well, what's fascinating is every class at Minerva 
is geographically quite different from other classes because we don't curate the class. The, the way admissions works at Minerva is we don't have a concept of spots. Um, we have the concept of a bar, right? So we draw a bar every summer. We decide, okay, look at data, how students do, and then we reformulate what does it take to get in. And then we draw that bar. And every single applicant that passes the bar is in, and every single applicant that doesn't pass the bar is out. So it's, it's, it's that simple. Now, the reality is, is that it leads to wild fluctuations from one year to the other on, on the size of the class because we draw the bar not knowing who our applicants are going to be. <laughs> and, so, and so what happens is we sometimes have very small classes and we sometimes have classes that are quite a bit larger. And, and, and it's the art is trying to, and every year we raise the bar. So every year it's harder to get into Minerva, but if we raise it too much, the class becomes tiny. And if we raise it too little, the class becomes too big. And so it's, it, we have to kind of finagle that. But so far, so good. We've stayed in this range of 100 to 200 students a year, which is, uh, which is the key, what we're, what we're trying to do. And we're trying to be more towards the middle. We'd, we'd prefer to be in this kind of 140 to 170 range, right, to tighten that up a little bit. Um, and we, we, we hope that we're on that, uh, on that trajectory now. And so, um, and so, and, and so the, the, the weird part is that every year you have these breakout countries, um, that sometimes, you know, we've had for a long while, but, but in some years we'll have, you know, a lot of Vietnamese students that make the bar and another, and a lot of Brazilians and another, a lot of Ukrainians and a lot of Kenyans and a lot of, uh, students from China and a lot of students from, uh, Korea, but then the next year, very few will make it. And it's a very strange mix in, in that sense, right? And there really isn't much of a pattern to it. At the same time, what's really astonishing is that our financial aid distribution is almost the same year to year. <laughs> and so from our very first year, so when we saw in our very first class, we said, oh, wow, you know, wow, 80% of these students can't afford what we're charging. That's higher than we expected. Oh, I guess it's an anomaly. And then the next year it was 81%. And then the year after that, it was 79%. And the year after that, it was 82%. We're like, wait a second. There's some real pattern here, right? Which is talent is broadly distributed, right? And when you actually create a, an admissions process that is equitable, that doesn't advantage wealthy applicants like so many admissions processes do, you wind up having a very, very distributed uh, student body. And can you say a little, two, two things there. So, so one, what does that bar look like? Because you're drawing so globally, it, it's not like we have a single recognized global standard to look at. So how are you determining what a bar looks like and, and then how you raise it? And then secondly, the, the, the idea that you're going to have these rapid fluctuations, that's like every enrollment and CFO's <laughs> nightmare. And particularly yeah. when you're thinking about how do you manage housing and this global distribution? I mean, if you're going to have 100 one year and 170, that that seems like it would be almost impossible to you know make the trains run on time and figure out the staffing and everything. So I'm just curious about those two elements. Yeah, it's uh, both, both interesting. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll address the second one first, which is the, the big cost for us in housing is San Francisco. So, because the students are in San Francisco two semesters, 
you can't just be in and out of housing, right? And so we have a 10-year lease on a building with a bunch of beds. And yes, it, when we have a small class, then you have a bunch of beds lie empty, and that's not ideal. The good news is that in non-pandemic times, San Francisco is a pretty hot real estate market. And so we try to find students from other universities that will live in those empty beds. And we have a little bit of a heads up. We'll know by May 1st, roughly how many beds we'll need. And then we'll try to sublet the rest. The other cities, however, because we're in and out for four months, we know how many beds we need to contract for. So so we created a cost structure, which is completely variable based on the students. We have professor sections based on how many students we need. We have housing based on how many students. We have staff based on how many students. And so really outside of having some headache of having to sublease 40 beds or zero beds on a given year, right, in San Francisco, that really is almost the only very, the only fixed cost that we have in that sense. So, so we designed the business model to, to uh, accommodate for that, uh, which is important. And as you've added um, classes, is there interaction among them? So I'm just trying to picture how this is working. So is it, yeah. you know, every sophomore year you're in, you know, Buenos right. Aires and, and Seoul and then every junior there. And is there any interaction between your seniors, juniors? So- how does yeah. that part? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so there, there is some interaction but we purposely want the students coming into Minerva to come in fresh, right? We have this, this statement that, uh, you know, most universities will say, you know, Harvard University established 1636 and, you know, Penn established 1740, even though that's not when Penn was actually established. They lie about that all the time. Um, they, they, they create fake, uh, fake establishments to make themselves look older. Um, we say that Minerva is established annually, right? Every year our students come in and get to reform what the university is all about. We like that. We don't want the, our institution to be static. We want to change all the time and grow and learn. At the same time, we do want to have some connections between classes. And so student activities traverse classes. Uh, we have these things called legacies, which are kind of like college houses, uh, each connected to one of our founding students. There are 25 legacies. And there are, uh, and every student gets assigned to them, and that's kind of their channel of communications up and down. We have uh, uh, when you are out of your first year courses, your second, third, and fourth year students intermingle in courses, and so you get to meet students that way. So there is connection, but it's definitely not like a typical university where the first years are kind of thrown in and there are a ton of people around you are with your cohort. It's actually a lot more like what happens at Harvard Business School, right? Where there may be 900 people at HBS, but you're 90-person section, right? You're going to 89 different weddings, right? Like everyone in that section is going to be your friend for life, right? And yeah, you've got these other HBS people that are around also, right? They're your broader network, and that's great, but it's that that uh, uh, that cohort that that really matters. And so that's the... Um, the philosophy. As far as the admissions uh, uh, process, we we really uh, look for for in three standard things, right? Um, we have the way we analyze high schools is uh, because you're right; it's they're so all over the map. 
we really look at how well a student has done given their circumstance, meaning given the high school they went to, right? So rather than trying to say, oh, you know, what does this GPA or mean in this school in Northeast Brazil compared to that school in, you know, Hanoi, right? Uh, or, or what is that doing in this class versus that class? This is impossible, right? We look at school assuming that high school is not particularly good and that uh, a, a student doing well in high school is a demonstration of whether or not they can eat their spinach, um, right? And, and so there are a lot of people we get, a lot of applicants that did terribly in high school and are very smart and we have no interest in them. Because we, we know that life is full of opportunities and necessities to eat your spinach, right? And, and we want students that demonstrate that. Now, to counterbalance that, we also want students that are pursuing things that they're passionate about, right, in a real way outside of a formal academic setting, right? And so we analyze what they do to not eat spinach, but actually to exercise their accomplishments or creativity. So those are two components. We use rubrics to assess all of these things. And then the last bucket is we have a standardized view of students from around the world. We have our own set of challenges that we issue to students. So rather than paying somebody to do the uh, SATs or to help you write your college essay, we will do a set of challenges that test all sorts of crazy things, including a pre-recorded video interview, including a live essay that you have to write. And the beauty of it is, most of the questions that we ask, no one has any idea why we ask them. And they have no idea how to, how to cheat on them, what we're looking for. We don't say what we're looking for. And so people just have to show up as their best selves and you know, we get to, uh, to assess them in various ways. And, and that is actually the thing that we use to compare students across uh, the world. And so that's the standard element uh, of what we do. And we mix that up on, on an annual basis. Great. Um, you've talked already about the, the core knowledge areas and, and, and outcomes you're looking to have the students learn. What does the pedagogical model look like? What, what are you looking for in the faculty and how does the faculty role, as opposed to say the instructional designer or the, the other parts that go into learning, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a really, really important element. So Minerva is a, is an extremely faculty friendly organization, uh, which is which is odd to think about because you know generally people think of oh well wait we we don't have tenure right uh, where we are uh, we certainly don't encourage lifetime employment. Our professors work really really hard, yet our retention of professors is through the roof. I mean, we have a 60-some person faculty. We lose one or two a year. Um, and so we have, and, and usually it's because they have really an amazing opportunity that we are excited for them uh, uh, to, to get, right? Which is, uh, which is exciting for, for everybody involved. And so the, the nature of, of what we do, even though it's very demanding, um, the professors actually see students progress. Right, and and they're very bought off on the model, but the role of the professor is radically different. Right, the professor's job is not to uh, profess. Right, they are there to facilitate. They're there to guide conversation, to bring the students out to apply what they've learned in homework 
content acquisition is done by a student on their own, which again, shouldn't be revolutionary, right? Everybody is, every college course in the world supposed to spend twice as much time outside of class than you do in class doing preparation, right? That's accreditation standards, right? And we just take that very seriously, right? And so when the students acquire knowledge on their own, they don't go to class to repeat that knowledge. They've acquired it. Now they go to class to apply it, right? And that application doesn't mean that the professor tells them what the application is, right? I mean, the, it means that the students engage. They do breakouts. They do debates. They, they work at all of these uh, pro- processes. And the professor's job is to guide their intellectual development, right? And so it's highly active, highly participatory. And it's done not with the course as the dominant unit, but with the curriculum as the dominant unit. Every professor contributes to the intellectual growth of the student in a coordinated way that is part of the overall intellectual journey and growth of the student over four-year arc. And that's the thing that makes the Minerva education so effective. Because, and and, and the easiest way to, 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 to think about it, and I think, you know, this is actually resonates with a lot of professors I've talked to. The current model that universities deploy for professors would be akin to trying to teach somebody to play a sport, right? And to say, you know what? I'm going to assign to you four different coaches to help you in any given, you know, in, in, in your tennis, let's say. Only problem is the four coaches are not going to talk to one another. They'll have no idea what the other coach is telling you to do right? You will have to do whatever those individual coaches say, even if it's in wild conflict with what the other one is telling you. And after four months with these four coaches, we're going to fire all of those coaches and give you four other coaches that not only will not talk to one another, they'll have no idea what the previous four coaches taught you, right? And, And we'll, by the way, bring to your coaching plan a plan that has nothing to do with you, the student but has everything to do with what they think a tennis player should know. It's lunacy. I mean, it, 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 it's so patently obvious that you cannot educate someone to do anything with that formula, but that's what every university does, right? And so the, 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 it's not a wonder that every 102 class I've ever had in college, the professor spent the first month repeating the 101 level class because they didn't trust that the student actually learned anything because they didn't know what the previous professor taught them, right? And so this concept of actually knowing that you're going to class and you're effective and that you're enabling students to learn and grow and be enlightened, it's a moment of joy for our professors, right? And and so it's an empowering uh, opportunity for them Rather than saying, hey, you know, the weight of the world is on you. You've got 26 sessions with a bunch of students and good luck. (laughs) Um, One of the things within that that you you have stressed is the notion of individual coaching. Is that something that the faculty are doing or is that a separate uh, staff function within the... Both. So, uh, so students have a, uh, uh, coaches assigned to them, which are kind of the replacement of the career center. 
So these are individuals who actually get to understand who the students are, their aspirations, help them think through their learning journey, help them think through their experiential journey, their career journey, applying to schools if they want to go to graduate schools, getting the right internships, uh, research opportunities over the summer, during the year, etc. But also, once the, the student gets specialized enough, they then work one-on-one with the professor as well. And so the, the, the entire Minerva curriculum is based on this, uh, uh, one of the concepts that it's based on is this idea of informed choice, right? In the first year, again, there's no choice. You take a common core curriculum, you learn all of those tools, but as you do that, you apply them to all of the concentrations that you can then pick for, major concentrations you can pick for later. And then in the second year, you have a limited amount of choice, right? You pick six courses out of, I think, a catalog of 17 or 18, right? And so you say, oh, okay, well, here's some areas I'm curious about. Here's an area that I think I'm going to specialize in. And then, you know, you, you develop a little bit more. And then in the following year, you pick six courses out of a catalog of 45 courses. So now you've got a lot of choice, right? And all of those courses are cross-disciplinary and cover all sorts of different things. And then in your last year, you do an individualized capstone, you do practicas where you apply what you've done to your own work, you create tutorials where the students co-create the classes with the professors, you effectively have infinite choice, but it's always informed. And so in that fourth year, when you're doing your capstone, you have a capstone advisor, a faculty member that works with you directly on that. Uh, and, And so that's where that individualist coaching helps. So you've got individual coaching approaches from your first semester freshman year, right, in kind of your overall learning arc and your career and how that will connect. But then you get the individual uh, attention from a faculty member when you're ready to make contributions in the field or in the intersection of fields. And for the first of those two coaches, the the sort of the career and life coach, grad school, what kind of ratio do you have for, for, for that? How many students is a coach covering? About 100 students. So we have, uh, we have about 100 to 1 ratio of uh, students to a coach. Uh, and we have similarly high ratios that where you not only have a coaching staff, you also have a mental health and wellness staff. You also have a student life and student experience staff, right? You also have, of course, the uh, the faculty that interact with with the students, and so you have layer upon layer of um, of staff. And that's actually one of the fascinating things, which is Minerva is actually, you know, people think, oh, you know, you charge so little, you're so efficient. We're massively inefficient uh, when it comes to actual the investment we make in a person's education, we overinvest in every regard. I don't know of a single highly selective university where 100% of the classes have fewer than 20 students, right? But there, you cannot find a 23-person class in Minerva. It doesn't exist, right? Um, and so th- that's an enormous amount of, uh, uh, of investment. We spend the top one half of 1% on, on uh, psychological uh, services, uh, counseling psychological services on a per-student basis uh, compared to other universities. Top one, half of 1%, right? I don't know of any uh, university that has the kind of career support that we have in our coaching, right? And so all of that is super high touch. It's just that we don't need physical infrastructure and that's where all of the money gets saved. Right. And one of the other things on your initial list of 12 that you mentioned, and you had a plan A and a plan B, was accreditation. Yeah. Um, that's a particular challenge when you're 
not only a brand new institution, but trying a whole new concept of education. Right. The the last folks I had on the pod, podcast were from KGI, where I think you know I, yeah. I was um, when when it first started. So I'm curious, um, you know, a, a graduate focused life science uh, <laughs> institution wasn't the obvious nat- natural place to to base this how you went about trying to find a host institution and, and, and how you ended up with KGI. Yeah. Well, uh, all praise goes to Terry Cannon uh, for, <laughs> for for that process, because without Terry, we would not exist. And that's a, a very uh, a matter of fact and true statement. Um, look, t- Terry was the executive vice president of WASC and she ran the region. I mean, she, she really understood everything. She knew every one of the 200 institutions uh, uh, in the region. And, uh, you know, when I kind of laid out the criteria with her, uh, and, you know, we, we laid them out together, we said, okay, well, here's what we need. We need an institution that is both prestigious and somewhat obscure because we want the Minerva brand to be incubated and be the primary brand, not the other institution's brand. Um, they cannot have any overlapping offerings, right? So we can't offer a computer science undergraduate degree with another, next to another computer science undergraduate degree. That's going to be very confusing and difficult, right? Um, they can't have tenure, right? And they have to be willing to do a costless academic partnership such that the accreditor won't think that, you know, the institution is doing it for money, right? And isn't actually doing it for pure reasons. Um, okay, let's go and figure that out. <laughs> good luck with that one, <laughs> yeah, Good right? luck with that. And it turns out KGI was the only institution <laughs> that filled that criteria. It was it, Right. There, there was really no effective other alternative. Our backup plan, and, and this, is, this is true, was, you know, uh, in, in San Francisco, there's a wonderful theater company called the American Conservatory Theaters, one of the, uh, uh, the America's premier theater companies. They also happen to have a 15-person Masters of Fine Arts, which is accredited and is one of the finest fine arts programs in the world. Our alternative was to go and raise the money to buy that institution, you know, and build Minerva around that, and then to have Minerva, and then this kind of twenty-person Master of Fine Arts program that we would do on the side. Um, so th- th- that's effectively what what we were looking for. But thanks to Shelley, really, you know, Sheldon Schuster, who's the the president of KGI, understood what Minerva was all about, deeply committed to active learning, was very excited about kind of the impact that we had. And it was crystal clear that there was nothing that we were doing that KGI was doing. And so it was actually a perfect host. Um, and they have been, uh, had been, I should say, a, an a extraordinary uh, place for us to have, uh, have been uh, uh, partnered with these last eight years. Uh, and, and again, if it wasn't for Terry, we wouldn't have found KGI. And if it wasn't for uh, KGI and Shelley, we wouldn't exist, right? Uh, we, we really owe our existence thanks to people like Larry, people like Shelley, right, that saw the goal of what Minerva is, is all about and selflessly, I mean, truly selflessly, um, lent their uh, name, their institution, their credibility to the cause. 
Now, Ben, you said had been. Have you now migrated out as you've, yes. gotten, you've been through the uh, interim accreditation process? That's right. So we are we are done with our interim accreditation. We are now officially standalone Minerva University as of July of 2021. So, uh, so now um, Minerva is not only the world's most selective university, it's also the world's newest university, which is kind of a funny, uh, a funny combination of those two. Um, but yes, so we, we're now, uh, you know, li- this week is the beginning of classes, was the beginning of classes for the first year of Minerva University's independent existence. Congratulations on that milestone. And on that note, if it's okay with you, I would love to, to pause there and then come back and ask you in a second episode about uh, your view of the future of Minerva, some of the offshoots, and, and where you see higher education heading. I would love that. Great. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you so much, David.